Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord as the watchman waits for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Imagine yourself engulfed in violent waters. Dragged to the bottom amidst swirling eddies of rough waters with nothing to grasp. No air to breathe, no light to find your bearings. Sinking ever deeper into a cold and murky darkness. Out of the depths, cries the psalmist. In the Old Testament, the depths refer to ocean depths, to the bottom of the sea, which is an image of the realm of death. Particularly in the Psalms, waters or floods or ocean depths are often used metaphorically to represent distress, to represent pressing trouble or enemies that make us feel like we sink. Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. Out of the depths, then, is a vivid image of distress. See, he doesn't have to use many words. Four words in English. One word in Hebrew. And he has said so much. With just one Hebrew word, the psalmist is saying, this is how I feel. I feel like I'm at the bottom of at the bottom of deep, deep waters. I'm in a mud sinkhole and I'm going down. I'm kicking my legs, I'm feeling, and I'm grabbing, and there's nothing to grab onto. I'm in a bottomless hole, and the more I kick, and the more I grab, and the more I struggle, the more I sink. I'm up to my neck. I'm going to die. See, this psalmist is dealing with deep internal turmoil. He's dealing with his emotions. And this is why I've come to appreciate the psalms very much, because they do give us a unique way to deal with our emotions. Because you know what? We don't know how to deal with our emotions, do we? 
I don't know how to deal with my, my emotions. Society in general, the church included, we don't know how to deal with our emotions. See, in religious circles like the church, there is this incredible resistance to owning our emotions, to admitting and facing our own feelings. Why? Because if we're trying to warrant God's blessing through a good record, we are psychologically unable to admit that we have intense, dark, turbulent emotions. We can't admit who we are. We can't see what's really in our heart. So we hide our emotions. We deny our emotions and we pretend. In secular circles, though, there's the, the opposite extreme. There is a tendency to simply see the expression of emotions and the discovery of emotions as good in itself. So once you discover what, what those emotions are, that's who you are. The church tells us, deny your emotions. Secular society tells us, let your emotions run wild. Church tells us, stuff your emotions. Secular society tells us, bow down to your emotions. But the Psalms teach us, pray your emotions. Not just pray about your emotions. No, pray your emotions. Bring them to God and process them process those emotions with him in the light of who he is and who we are. And that's what the psalmist does. He brings his emotions to God and he processes them with God. Though metaphorically drowning in a flood of emotions, the psalmist says, verse 1, Out of depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my, to my cries of my pleas for mercy. So in the midst of his internal turmoil, he brings his emotions to the Lord, and look how he does it. He, he's not messing around. He's not wasting time. He, he goes straight to the point. Verse 2 says, hear my voice. Hear my voice. That's an imperative. It's a demand. And you know, for many of us, that may sound like an improper way to approach God. It may, it may sound uh, blasphemous even. But see, his distress... His sorrow is, is so overwhelming, goes so deep, that he doesn't have the strength or the time to compose himself. He's agonizing. He's truly calling out of the depths. He's lamenting. And see, this is, this is something very, very interesting because there are a lot of laments in the Psalms. There are a lot of laments. And, and what is interesting is that the name of the book in Hebrew is Praises. It's Songs of Praise. See, there are a lot of laments in the book of Psalms, but the editors didn't deem necessary to change the name of the book. You know, they didn't say, you know what, let's just change the name of the book, let's just, or, or let's just grab this bunch of laments and, and, and complaints and have them be another book. No, they kept the name. They kept the name. This can only mean that our lament to God is also a way in which we praise Him. God deserves our words of praise when we address him, but we, he doesn't need to be soothed with words before we can voice our pain. We can be raw and we can be honest with God about how we feel. The authentic expression of feelings denotes a deep relationship between the one who prays and God. And God wants intimate relationship with us. We don't have to pretend we have it all together. We, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And we don't have to process our, our grief by ourselves before we come to him in order not to offend him. No, we come to him to process our grief with him.
we, when we come to God in sincere lament, we are worshiping Him because we are giving Him His proper place in the covenant relationship. We are giving Him the place of the only one who can truly save. See, this is authentic covenant interaction. We cry to Him, He saves. Salvation begins with a cry. Redemption begins with a cry. Restoration begins with a cry. That's a protocol. Whether we like it or not, human anguish and loud petitions to God for salvation are essential, are essential to covenant relationship with God. So our psalmist today is sinking in the depths and he's calling to God, but what is he sinking in? What's causing him so much distress? Well, the exact nature of the psalmist's uh, distress is not, is not clearly stated in, in the psalm, but by the time we get to verse 3, we get a hint of what he's talking about. In verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you should mark iniquities, if you were to keep records of sin, he's talking about sin. And notice the stark contrast he establishes here between sinking and standing. He's saying, I can't stand. Because the weight of the record of my sins is pulling me down. It's making me sink. He's talking about the emotional and even physical pain we experience when we are convicted of our sin. He's talking about guilt. And he's talking about shame. That, that, that sense that we are unacceptable, that we are unworthy. Guilt. And shame, the chaotic depths that, like a tsunami wave, overwhelm God's covenant people. Now, <clears throat> both the church and, uh, and secular society, we tend to think that we are past this. We're no longer dealing with guilt and shame, but that's not true. We are still dealing with, with guilt and shame. How do the people in the church deal with guilt? Well, generally, two steps. Number one, we hide it. We can conceal it. And number two, we try harder. By experience, I tell you that I didn't want to pray to God when I feel guilty. Oh, no. I, I didn't feel worthy to come to him. I knew what I needed to be doing, and I wasn't doing it. So my plan was, well, I'm going to start doing what I know I should be doing, and then, only then, I'm going to come to God, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Asking to somebody to help me, Are you crazy? Are you out of of your mind? Nobody needs to know. This is between God and me. Nobody needs to know. I was afraid of being rejected. I was afraid of being known for who I really am. I didn't want the image I had accomplished to fall apart. And so I hid. And I tell you, if you are experiencing something like that right now, You're in the depths. But that's how a lot of us within the church deal with guilt. We hide it, and then we try harder. And how does secular society deal with guilt? They don't want to deal with guilt, so they get rid of it. How do they do that? They get rid of rules. Voila. No rules, no guilt. And they say... No, my friend, you, you make your own rules. You decide what's right or wrong for you. You live according to what's good 
to your own eyes. Isn't that brilliant? Right? I mean, no rules, no shame. There's, there's only one problem. Franz Kafka, he's one of the most influential authors of the 20th century, and he declared himself uh, to be an atheist, by the way. He, he said it best, and he, he wrote this in his diary. He wrote, the problem that modern people have is, is that we feel like sinners. We feel like sinners, though independent of guilt. We feel like sinners, though independent of guilt. That is, there is no guilt because we haven't fallen short of any rules. There aren't any rules. Yet we still feel that there's something wrong with us. Isn't that interesting? And, and this was written like 80 years ago. <laughs> that means that for the last 80 years, we've been doing everything we can to loosen the moral structures, yet we still feel embarrassed. We still feel unworthy. We still feel like we, we, we still experience the, the burden that we need to prove ourselves. We're still going to the depths. Why? Well, because we have to acknowledge that the depths are not only made of guilt, they are also made of shame. And we think of this world, uh, these two words, like they were uh, synonyms, but, but they're not. They work tightly together. They both make us feel like we are unworthy and unacceptable, but they're, they're not the same thing. See, with guilt, we're dealing with rules. But with shame, we're not dealing with rules. No, with shame, we're dealing with self-image. In guilt, we say, here's a rule, I broke it. In shame, we say, I aspire to be someone. I have a vision of whom I should be, but I failed. In guilt, we've fallen short of the rules and we feel bad about what we've done. In shame, we've fallen short of the vision and we feel bad about who we are. And let me tell you something. We all have this inherent battle with shame. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, every man, woman, and child has been facing a hidden battle with shame. That nagging sense that there's something deeply wrong with us, that we are of no significance, that our worth as people is threatened. And because we feel shame... We feel compelled to hide. We feel compelled to blame. We, we feel compelled to, compelled to avoid relationship, to present to others only that part of us we feel like is going to be well-received. We feel we need to prove ourselves. We all have an inherent battle with shame. It doesn't matter if we get rid of the rules, we still have to deal with shame. In fact... Having no rules is way worse. You know why? Because, because without guilt, there, there's no way you can do anything about your shame. We'll have absolutely no idea without rules. We'll have absolutely no idea of where our shame is coming from. So getting rid of rules is not the most effective way to deal with guilt, yet this is how secular society deals with guilt. They get rid of the rules. And how does the church deal with guilt? We hide it and we try harder. But the psalm says, the psalm says, well, first of all, to secular society it says, if you want to know where your shame is coming from, you need to be absolutely certain about what's good and what's wrong, what's right and what's wrong. 
You need to bring back the standard. You need to be bring back the rules. Bring back the standard. Which, which standard? Well, so the psalmist says, If you mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Literally in the Hebrew, the Hebrew says, If you watch iniquities. If you watch iniquities. So you've been saying that we need to live, to live according to what's good in, in our own eyes. The psalm says, Only the eyes of God matter. The eyes of God are the only eyes that matter. So live according to the will of God and then listen to the message that I'm going to say to the church. And to the church, Psalm says, you are a step ahead. You know the standard. It's the eyes of God. It's the will of God. It's the law of God. And Psalm 19 says, the law of God is perfect, is right, is sure, is pure. But Psalm 130 says, but if the law of God is all you have, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? So we need more than the law of God. And what do we need? Verse 4, but with you, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness. How does the Spirit of God help, help him deal with, with guilt? He points him to who God is. See, this is, that's, that's what the, psalm, the Psalms in general teach us. Process your feelings with God in light of who you are and in light of who He is. And you're a sinner, but God is merciful. God is gracious. He does not keep account of sin. He forgives. And because he forgives, we can stand. And we can stand before him. See, that, that, that's, that's part of, of the heaviness of guilt. Guilt points out to the reality that our relationship with God has been fractured. And because we're guilty, we, we cannot restore. We cannot restore that relationship. Only God can. God's forgiveness provides the way for a renewed relationship. It makes us stand. And it is this reality that causes us to stop fearing the dreadful depths of guilt and begin fearing the Lord. See, fear in the Bible means that it means to, to be overwhelmed to, with, with something, to be controlled by something. Therefore, in this context, to fear the Lord means to be overwhelmed with the greatness of his love and graciousness. See, the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. We were sinking. And because of his forgiveness, we now stand. Now, some, someone from a secular society might say, you know, you, you may be right. Um, um, without guilt, I don't have... Uh, I, I, I don't have anything to do about my, my guilt. There's nothing I can do about my shame without guilt. You're right. But forgiveness doesn't cut it. Forgiveness doesn't cut it for me. It doesn't work for me. I still feel insignificant. I still feel like I need to prove myself. And even more so, within the church, isn't it true that sometimes many of us also feel like that? That forgiveness doesn't really seem to quite work for us. 
We know that God's forgiveness delivers us from the way of guilt. We know this is true. We want to believe this is true. We want to claim this truth for our lives. But for some reason, it is not working. People tell us, but God forgives you. God loves you. And we say, but I can't forgive myself. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot love myself. Has anybody else felt like that? Guilt and shame are are similar in that they make us feel unacceptable, but as we've seen, they're different, so they need to be approached in a different way. And our psalmist has already addressed guilt, and he now turns to shame. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. He says, I wait for the Lord. I hope in the Lord. This is, this is a statement of trust. This is not a statement of, of, of praise, of celebration. He, he just got delivered from, from, from guilt. He should be celebrating. Why a statement of trust? He's dealing with shame. First of all, hope in the Bible means certainty. It's not the way, it doesn't mean the, what it means for us when we use it every day. Like we say, I hope we win, you know, like maybe. No, in, in, the, in the Bible, it, it means certainty. In the Bible, it means that you can trust God more than you can trust that the sun will rise in the morning. And we know that the sun will rise in the morning. You can trust him more like that. That's hope. And I think he says, I wait for the Lord. I hope in the Lord because he's getting at this. How do we deal with shame? And this is going to be easy because both the church and secular society deal with shame the same way. How do we deal with shame? How do we deal with this sense that we need to be significant? Well... We figured out a way to become significant, and we put our hope in that. We say, if I get to be that, then I'll get rid of this problem of insignificance. Then I'll get rid of this sort of inherent shame. And what are those things we put our hope in? Our career, our looks, our education, our ministry, our family. See, I've, I've dealt with all of these. Um, and very recently, a, a friend of mine helped me realize that one of the places in which I've been putting my hope was in getting the respect of my two-year-old daughter. It's ridiculous, isn't it? She's not even two. So laugh hard. But the, the truth is, I was getting angry, very angry at her. I would yell at her. And, um, and she would cry. <laughs> she, she'd get scared. I could see her face. She, um, she was afraid of me. <laughs> and and I, was, I was getting scared of myself. I was asking myself, am I going to be that type of father? And my friend asked me, well, why do you get angry? And I said, well, this little stinker thinks that she can play dumb with me. And I know she knows better. I know she knows more than that. She's just two, but she's pretty smart. She's like her mom. <laughs> and you know what? She, uh, she's trying to mock me, but she will not mock me. She will not play me. And my friend helped me see that I was craving 
to be respected. I was craving to, to be valued. I was craving to have worth. And I wasn't getting, getting that in, in other places in my life. So I was demanding that from my family. And my, my wife did all right. But when my daughter failed, when she failed to, get, to give me what I was demanding of her, I got angry. See, I was yelling at her, not because I was concerned about her, not because I was concerned about her character and about her discipline. No, I was concerned about myself. I was putting my hope to feel worthy in my two-year-old daughter. That's how we consciously or unconsciously deal with inherent shame. We put our hope somewhere. And here the psalmist, he's telling himself, I wait on the Lord, I hope in the Lord. Not because he's doing it, because he's trying to convince himself. He's seen, he, he, he realizes, I've been putting my hope somewhere else. And there are only two problems with that strategy. See, those things we, we put our hope in, they might work for a while. They might be working for you right now, as a matter of fact. And you might be feeling wonderful. <laughs> but those those things we put our hope in, they don't last. So you have to retire at some point. You're not going to be working all the time. People disappoint. You're not going to look like you look like right now all the time. And number two, second problem, they make you feel worthy when you keep up with them. But when you don't, they make you pay. They oppress you. They tyrannize you. They make you feel ever more unworthy. They make you sink. See, those things we, we put our hope in, they don't forgive. They don't forgive. God does. Hope in the Lord. We've been putting our hope somewhere else. See, that's why sometimes we feel like God's forgiveness isn't working for us. That why, that's why sometimes we say, I cannot forgive myself. But it's not that we cannot forgive ourselves. It's that we've been putting our hope somewhere else. See, if your God forgave you, if your God loved you, you'd be fine. You'd be fine. The problem is, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, of David, of Jesus, he's not your God. He's not your God. The problem is that the hope of the Bible is not your hope. You already have your hope somewhere else. And that hope is not forgiving you. That's why, that's why you don't feel forgiven. That's why you're still sinking in unworthiness. We have to shift our hope. And we have to put it in God. Now, how do we do that practically? Well, in order to shift our hope, we have to find out where it currently is, where our hope is right now. And acknowledging where our hope is is going to require some getting to know ourselves. Um, and by experience, I tell you that it's going to be a sobering experience, very sobering. Realizing we don't trust God Realizing how sinful and flawed we are, that's sobering. That's painful. But facing that pain, facing that sorrow, 
Isn't that a prerequisite for a true covenant relationship with God? Isn't that why this psalmist can now see that he really needs to call on God? That he needs to shift his hope? Isn't that why he can now begin to truly experience freedom from guilt and shame? And folks, isn't that how we truly get to understand and experience the power of the gospel? See, we need to see ourselves to the bottom. We need to see the depths of our depravity in order to be aware of how desperately we need him. We need to see it, not just acknowledge it with our lips, that we, oh yeah, we're sinners, sure. No, we need to see see it. We need to see our sin. We need to see our distrust. And we need to see that in order to be transformed by the reality that he who has seen us to the bottom, he who, who knows us at our worst, has been willing to sacrifice for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ says to us, I know you to the bottom. My eyes can see everything, everything in your heart. And I love you anyway. Is there anything else you can put your hope in that can forgive you? Is there anything else you can put your hope in that can love you like I do? Psalm 130 teaches us that in order to overcome overcome guilt and shame, we need, number one, we need to come to him. We're going to feel like we need to hide, but we need to come to him. Number two, we need his forgiveness. Number three, we need to put our hope in the one who forgives. And number four, we need community. Look at verse seven. He says, O Israel, O nation of Israel, hope in the Lord. What is he doing? He's now turning to the community of faith. Which, by the way, they, they've been there all this time. <laughs> they, they've been listening all this time from the beginning. All his prayer, they've been there. And here's the thing. We cannot effectively deal with guilt and shame without community. I wouldn't have been able to see where, that I was putting my hope in my daughter. See, we live in this individualistic culture that infiltrates our church, and we say, this is just between me and God. Nobody else needs to know. And then I can go on with pretending with everybody else that I'm perfect, that I'm, that I'm fixed. But the first thing God does after showing us his love and mercy is send us into community. In fact, we won't be able to fully experience the love and forgiveness of God apart from community. God loves to use his people. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Implication, if we don't, if we don't confess to one another, if we don't pray for one another, we won't be healed. We need, we need community. We need each other. We need community. And, and brothers and sisters, what happens here every Sunday morning, this is wonderful. We come together to worship. This is wonderful. And this is all the more necessary, but this is not enough. This is not enough. 
we need to be part of smaller communities of faith where we can truly get to know each other, where, where we can help each other to see where we're putting our hope and encourage each other to hope in the Lord. And if you're, not, if you're sitting there and you're not part of, of, of a smaller community of faith, I encourage you, please, get into one. I beg you, get into one. You may feel like you're, you're in no position uh, to encourage anyone. You may feel you don't, ha- you don't have it all together. But guess what? Our psalmist, he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have it all together either. From verse 5 to verse 7, he, he, he's not able to, he doesn't have enough time to get it all together. See, putting our hope in the Lord, this is not a quick fix. It's more like a lifetime fix. See, in, in the Hebrew, uh, hoping and waiting, they're not separated. They go together. We're supposed to wait while we're hoping, and we're supposed to hope while we're waiting. And what that means is that putting our hope in God takes time. It's a long process. We have to wait. Like me, you may have been a professing Christian for many years, and then come to realize, but I'm still a person that is guilt-driven. I'm still sinking in guilt. But now I realize why. You know, some days we'll, we'll, do, we'll do better than others. Some days we'll find ourselves operating in our old approach. We, we have two self-images going on. It's, it's, it's the old man and the, and the new man in us that Paul talks about. And you know what? If, if, if this was a quick fix, Paul wouldn't have to tell us, set, set aside the old man. He wouldn't have to tell us that. But this is a long process. Like Peter, like the Apostle Peter, some days we will walk on top of turbulent waters, and other days we will sink. But Jesus Christ will always be there to stretch out his hand to us. He always stands on top of turbulent waters. It's a long process. The, 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 psalmist, the psalmist knows he has to wade on the Lord, but he doesn't wait to be completely healed before coming alongside others and encouraging them to hope in the Lord. He's not out there in the business uh, to proclaim himself, to proclaim his success. No, he's out there to proclaim the Lord. And he's getting himself out of the sinkhole by encouraging other to, others to hope in the Lord with him. Our psalmist doesn't have doesn't have it all together, yet he turns to his community of faith and tells them, hope in the Lord. And I, I don't have it all together, but I'm turning to you, and I'm telling you, people of God, let us hope in the Lord. With him, there is steadfast love and abundant redemption. He will not just send us, give us a, a, a bunch of rules by which we, we can redeem ourselves. No, he will come himself. He, will, he himself will come to redeem his people. And he has come already in Jesus Christ, and he will come again. Let us hope in the Lord together and wait upon the Lord together. He will give us strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, 
we praise you, Lord. We are in awe before you, Lord, because with you, there is abundant redemption. With you, there is steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, because, we, uh, because of your forgiveness, we can stand before you, Lord. And we can restore our relationship with you and restore our relationship with one another. And thank you, Lord, for giving us community to deal with, to deal with guilt and shame. Father, will you give us the strength to hope in you? Will you give us the strength to wait upon you? May all the glory and, and, and the worth and the praise be to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.